Well, we have uh, before us uh, quite a text, not your uh, typical Sunday morning uh, fare. The good thing about this text is I really don't have to come up with a hook, you know, an introduction to get your attention. I think everybody's paying attention, very curious about what I'm going to say. The bad thing is I have to say something. After reading this text, there are some, uh, there's a lot of questions, and uh, two of the more obvious questions I want to address. The first one uh, is the question of, is this uh, appropriate material for a Sunday morning service? And as you can see, obviously, we don't think it's appropriate for all audiences. That's why the children have been excused. But otherwise, I would say absolutely. After all, it is God's word. Second Timothy tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and uh, growing and equipping us. We are to learn. There's actually much for us to learn from this story this morning. And in addition, this text is actually very, uh, very real and very relevant. All the sordid evil and perversity here is really the world that we, we live in every day. Of course, we should be talking about it at church. I love that the scriptures don't flinch. It lends to their authenticity and credibility. People need to know that they can come to church and not really just enter this kind of bubble of, uh, you know, sainthood and ignorant bliss. No, this, this speaks, the uh, church speaks right into their everyday lives. The second question is, why is this here, this story? I mean, why is it right here in this place in the text? After, after all, if you look at the, uh, the end of verse of chapter 37, it says this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, that's Joseph, uh, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now look at the beginning of verse 39, of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. It would flow perfectly well to go right on to the next chapter and not have this weird section on Judah and Tamar that seems to have nothing to do with Joseph right in the middle. So why is it here? Well, I opened one major commentary, and this is what his answer was. This peculiar chapter stands alone without connection to its context. It is isolated in every way and is most enigmatic. It does not seem to belong with any of the identified sources of ancestral tradition. It is not evident that it provides any significant theological resource. It is difficult to know in what context it might be of value for theological exposition. For these reasons, our treatment of it may be brief. Not very helpful. (laughs) In other words, what he's saying is it shouldn't be here and you shouldn't preach it in any context. Well, I disagree. First of all, the whole larger narrative section, we need to remember, isn't just about Joseph. Remember, uh, chapter 37, verse 1, introducing the larger section, says this, Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, not just Joseph. 
And, and, and Judah is clearly one of his 12 sons, the sons of promise. So this story does belong, doesn't it? And if you pay attention, you will notice that this story continues some of the major themes that have been going on in the patriarchal narratives. Even the little details of the, the secondborn being preferred, and it highlights the, the blamelessness of Joseph in light of his very evil uh, brothers. And most importantly, the promises of offspring and blessing to the whole world that are to that go all the way back to Abraham and forward to Christ are clearly progressed through this story. It not only fits, it's very important, this story. Okay, so let's, uh, let's take a look then. The first section I have titled, Wickedness and Judgment. Let's read again the first four verses. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah, Judah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. The story starts rather tame and actually kind of encouraging. Judah is very quickly blessed with three sons in succession, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. God had promised Abraham that he would bless his line with many descendants and that through them the whole world would come into blessing. But if you know the narrative so far, you know it's been a struggle, this line of blessing. Barrenness has been a, a plague. Sarah's, you know, closed womb and her, her old age was that initial threat. How is the line going to come on? You know, Abraham's wife until Isaac came, miraculously. And then Isaac with Rebekah and her barrenness until Jacob and Esau. So this text right at the start would catch the Hebrews' eye. Three sons in a blink. Wow. Seems like good news. But there's something else that would catch the Hebrew reader's eye that he wouldn't miss, and that is sin and uh, disobedience. You see, both Abraham and Isaac had made it very clear that their sons were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. You can look back in chapter 24 and in chapter 28. They were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. It was for the purpose of the, of the preservation of, of, of the holiness of God's people. They were to be set apart, a special people through which he would bring his blessing. But Judah doesn't seem to care about those promises at all. He goes straight to this Adolamite, Canaanite guy, Hira, and he takes one of his daughters. And look at the language in verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. 
called him Ur. This is not a romantic moment. It's pure lust and disobedience. Note how it says that he saw her and took her. It's the language right out of the Garden of Eden. Eve seeing the apple and, and desiring it, even though she knew it was wrong and against God's promise, and takes it. It's the very definition of sin. Judah is not a faithful guy. He doesn't care about the promises of God. He's driven by nothing but sinful, selfish lust. And the sons that come, they are on that same trajectory and worse. Verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Not only does Er have a bad name, Er, it's like, what should we name him? Er, yeah, that sounds good. He's got a bad name, and he's a bad guy. His sins are so bad that God doesn't even list them, which says something considering the sins that he lists of his brother next. Pretty ugly. Ur is really, really wicked, and God just takes him out, puts him to death, leaving a, a widowed Tamar. Now, the common custom of the day directed that if a husband died without an heir, his brother was to marry his widow so as to produce an heir for him by proxy. This arrangement allowed two benefits. For the widow. First of all, family. The, the son, by proxy, would, uh, would, uh, uh, would take on the name of the deceased husband, continuing his line, and his, his family would take care of this widow, Tamar. Secondly, it provided her with kind of an inheritance. The son would inherit whatever was due to his deceased father. In this case, the inheritance of, of the firstborn, thus giving her some kind of income through her family to take care of her, especially in her older years. In a culture with no social welfare system and no means for a widow to earn an income, this was her hope for some security and really for some significance. Without an heir, she has nothing and is nothing. So in steps... The second son, Onan, the next brother in line, he steps right up to marry her. Which, by the way, he doesn't have to do. This is a custom. Deuteronomy 25 even talks about the way around this if you don't want to do this. But he steps right in. He says he wants to be the good guy, to look the hero. So he's more than happy to do his husbandly duty. But the text tells us in no uncertain terms that he intentionally refuses to finish the job. In their sexual encounters, he makes sure that she is not impregnated. And make no mistake, this is wicked exploitation. The Hebrew makes it clear that he did this repeatedly to her. It wasn't just some one-off attempt so he could say, well, I tried, but no luck. 
No, he repeatedly used her. He took from her, and he took from her, and he took from her, all the way while making sure she got nothing. This poor, vulnerable young woman, each time desperately hoping that he would do the right thing. But he's a selfish pig. He didn't want her to have a son. Because that son would take a large share of the inheritance that was to be divided amongst his family. He didn't care that she would have no family to care for her and nothing to live on. He just wanted to take advantage of her vulnerable situation. Use her for his pleasure and leave her with nothing. Prostitutes are treated better. It's absolute sexual exploitation and abuse. It's wicked and evil. And like his brother, God says, you're dead. He takes him out. And at this point, I know I've heard people say that God seems a bit harsh with his punishment, that he needs to chill a little bit. But let me say, if you think that, that just means that you don't understand who God is. You don't understand his holiness and his purity. He created us and he sets the standards for how we should live. And it's not gray and flexible according to how we feel about it as our culture thinks. It's absolute. And he loves us. And he won't let his children treat each other this way. He hates exploitation and abuse. He's the protector of the vulnerable. And he will bring justice. So make no mistake, this text is a warning to all exploiters and victimizers which of course we see everywhere in our world today, whether it's sex traffickers and pornographers abusing vulnerable women, or whether it's just the guy who wants to do the deed and not be the dad, the guy who takes and takes and takes sexually with no care and love and then moves on leaving broken lives and neglected children in his wake or whether it's the husband who in the name of religion and maybe even Christ abuses and exploits his spouse. It's everywhere. So if this is you this morning, be warned. God sees, he cares, and he judges. Let me read verse 10, Onan's in. Onan's end, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. Perhaps this is a warning. That can be your salvation this morning if you respond and repent. Now, the situation here doesn't change much for poor Tamar. Her father in law, Judah, promises her his third son, Shelah. When he's of age, apparently he's too young, he says, hey, when he grows up, he can help you to have an offspring. But as readers, we know that he has no intent 
of giving Sheila to her. He seems to think that she's some kind of black widow. Her, his sons are dying because of her. You see that, and for he feared that he would die, Sheila, in verse 11. So he's not going to give Sheila to her. So Tamar is just left childless, used, discarded, to live out her days until her life withers away. At this point, the text has kind of reached a crisis point at two levels. First, at the obvious relational level, if you have any empathy at all, you're wondering what's going to happen to poor Tamar. And second, at a theological level, if you've been reading and paying attention to the narrative, you have to be asking and wondering what's going to happen to God's promise. The promise that through the offspring of of Abraham, he would grow a great nation of people as his own, and through them he would bless the world. How is this ever going to happen through such wicked people? Judah doesn't seem to care about God's promise, marrying a Canaanite in total faithlessness. Onan is working against any offspring. Heir is totally evil and put to death. So there's no offspring. How is this going to happen? And considering the, the nasty character of the other brothers that we saw last week, everything from incestuous adulterers to mur- genocidal murderers who sell their brother into slavery, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. Well, the answer to both these crisis questions comes with the rest of the story, point two, Tamar's sordid plan. Look at verse 12 with me. Let's read again. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Naim, which is the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So Tamnar knowing her father-in-law has deceived her about Shela and abandoned her, seizes this opportunity. Judah's wife has passed away, and knowing the kind of man he is, she assumes he will be seeking female comfort. So hearing he's going on this trip, she disguises herself as a cultic roadside prostitute, really just playing the part 
that she's already been assigned by the men in her life. And predictably, he comes to her for her services, not recognizing her in veiled face. And the text tells us she conceived. But it also tells us that Judah had no way to pay her at the time, so he left behind his signet and cord and staff, kind of the modern or the ancient equivalent of leaving your driver's license and your social security number. But when he sent his servant back to pay later and to collect his things, she's gone. So we pick up the story, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. This is how the crisis is averted. Hers, first of all. She takes things into her own hands and becomes pregnant by her father-in-law, the one who started this whole mess. The one who gave her to his evil sons and deceived her about Sheila, leaving her childless and destitute, is now the one who provides her with offspring doubly So she can be cared for and have an inheritance and a family line. But even more, her exploitation and abuse has ended. As Judah not only admits he has wronged her, but it says at the end of verse 26 that he no longer knew her. Again, the taking from her has ended, and she receives blessing. It's really an incredible turnaround, incredible vindication. And on top of this, her actions here, no matter how you judge them, God uses to solve the even bigger theological crisis as to the offspring of promise. How are the nations going to be blessed through this wicked family that has no interest in even trying to propagate the line of promise that actually does everything to thwart it through Tamar? Poor, exploited, nobody, Canaanite Tamar. And note how this is made clear through the wrestling twins. Verse 28, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. 
Oh, my goodness. What does that remind you of? Womb wrestling twins. What does it remind you of? It echoes back to Jacob and Esau's birth, leaving no doubt that despite their half-breed Canaanite status, Perez and Zerah are part of the chosen line of blessing. Which incredibly, when you follow the trajectory of this line, we end up where? We end up in Matthew. The very beginning of our New Testament, the genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, let me read it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the one who is the fulfiller all the way back to Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brother, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, this Gentile Canaanite used and abused, discarded woman, God lifts up to be the heroine of his promise, the very means through which he will bring his greatest blessing to the nations, his very son, our Savior. Blessed be Tamar. Wow. Okay, so what are the takeaways from this text to us, this side of the cross. Well, first of all, I think the obvious one is our God's plan of salvation is kind of unstoppable. He will work out his plan. He will make it happen. He will keep his promises, even in the midst of all our world's sinful dysfunction and outright evil and perversion and rebellion, he is working out his will. It will be done. Judah's faithless deceit and hypocrisy can't stop him. Ur's outright evil, own and selfish perversion, Tamar's seduction, he works through it all to bring his blessing, to bring his son, our Savior. I think this simple truth is so important for us to, to remember today as we look out at our declining society and culture where pornographic perversion is fashionable and celebrated, where domestic violence is par for the course, where oppression of the vulnerable and sexual exploitation is built into our societal structures from big business to politics even to our religious institutions, so that the degradation seems re beyond repair, seems beyond hope. Guess what? Our God is not thwarted. The world cannot out his sovereignty. He is working. We don't need to panic and flee off to isolate ourselves or win the culture war, or reclaim our, our Christian political dominance so we can be okay. God is still working his salvation plan through it all. And even if we don't see it in our lifetime, do you think Tamar saw it? I think she knew what was going to happen. 
Even if we don't see it, it's happening. His will is being done. His kingdom will come. God recorded this story for us so we would believe, so we would trust him in times just like these when things look awful. By the way, the cross is the ultimate proof of this. You can kill his son and send him to the grave and God will work it for our salvation. And you know, we need to, re- we need to remember this not just at that bigger level but at a personal level as his struggling children with our own issues and perversions and brokenness and repeated sinful failures, we don't need to hang our heads. He's still working in and through us. As Philippians 2.13 says, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Which brings me to takeaway number two. Our God delights to redeem our stories. You know, the story of Tamar is is not really a one-off in the scriptures, is it? God taking her life from a place of victimization and exploitation and powerlessness and lifting her up to become a matriarch of the line of Judah, the very means of bringing his salvation into this world. It's just the kind of thing he does and loves to do. You know, in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 that traces all the significant people in the line of Christ. It doesn't tell you everybody, right? Traces all the significant people. Do you know what other women are named in that? Yeah. Which, by the way, just having women in it is amazing in an ancient genealogy. But you know who these women are that are named? There's four other ones. It's not Sarah, Abraham's wife. It's not Rebecca, Isaac's wife. It's not Leah. It's not Rachel. No, besides Tamar, if you read through it, you'll see Rahab, the prostitute, Ruth, the Moabite outsider, Bathsheba, the Hittite woman exploited by David, to Mary, the young, poor girl, scandalously pregnant. You see, God loves to take the humiliated, the exploited, the vulnerable of this world and and lift them up, restore their lives, redeem their stories to his glory and their salvation. It's his delight. Psalm 103, we had it read, this is what it said. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Again, this is ultimately demonstrated at the cross where the most innocent, pure one was despised and humiliated and rejected and destroyed by all mankind, by all of our sin and exploitation, all of us, but God lifted him up to glory, bringing his salvation and redemption to us all. And I want you to hear this. If you're sitting here today as a victim, 
of abuse and exploitation. And by the way, the statistics say one in four. If you're sitting here and you're feeling worthless, like your life has been defiled and ruined, maybe you wear shame daily and you feel hopeless in it, know this. God not only sees your story as he did Tamar's, he experienced your story in his son. And with his son's very life given, he's bought your redemption. And would, nothing would delight him more than to restore your life today, to redeem your story, to save you and cleanse you and give you new life, beautiful and restored. Just turn to him. Ask him. It's what he delights in. If you're not sure, I want you to talk to some of the folks that are here. This is their story. I know their stories. I'm looking at some of you right now, and I know you've come from past just like this, but God has lifted you up and redeemed your story. It's his joy. And lastly, one more takeaway. Our God can transform the worst of sinners. Our God's salvation work is unstoppable. Our God delights to redeem our stories, and our God can transform the worst of sinner. Look at Judah here, the other main character. He is this awful, perverse, evil man. He takes his first wife straight out of lust and dominance. He thrusts his evil sons upon Tamar, blaming her for their deaths and leaving her to languish in childless poverty. He goes into her when he thinks she is a prostitute and then in the greatest of hypocrisy demands her violent death by burning upon discovering her pregnancy. He is so rotten that when you read it you think, how come God doesn't kill him? But then there's this dramatic turn in his life, this complete shift when, when Tamar places before him the signet and the cord and the staff to confront him, he, he suddenly has this honest, real moment where he sees his unrighteousness and he confesses it out loud. And, and he, he turns from his ways. He goes not into her Again, and we know it's a real change because as we read on in the narrative, when we get to chapter 44, we see him acting as, as the righteous man offering his life to save his brother Benjamin. And then when you get to chapter 49, his father Jacob blesses him with this wonderful honor. Let me see if I can find it in chapter 49. Just a second. Forgot to mark it. This is what he says in chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He is radically 
changed from a scumbag loser to the patriarch of, of obedience, the light of Christ. God uses this woman he was sinning against to show him to himself, to open his eyes, and he owned it, and he repented, and his life was saved and transformed. And Maybe you relate a little more to Judah today. Maybe in your honest self-reflection, you know you have been an exploiter and an abuser who has spent much of your Life selfishly taking and taking and taking. Maybe you can hardly bear to look back at the wake of relational destruction and hurt you've caused. It's too painful. You, you block it because you can't change it. And, and you can't change yourself. You're stuck. Do you know what Judah's story is saying to you? Face it. Own it. Confess it. You see, your life does not have to be a static line where what you have been is who you are and what you will ever be. God can radically save and transform you, lift your life from the pit, from the curse of Odin and Ur, from the trajectory of death and judgment. That's what this story is ultimately about. It's where it's leading. The blessing of Jesus coming to this world. It's why Jesus came at the cross. He took all our sin and evil upon him. He took the curse of Onan and Ur. All of us. He took our death to give us life. To offer us transformed lives. And you can know it today. Just own it. Face it. Confess before the Lord. Admit your unrighteousness. And receive his salvation. The truth is we're all a mixture of both Tamar and Judah. Somewhere on the spectrum of sinners who sin against. Abused abusers. God wants to redeem our stories. He can redeem you this morning. If you want that, just pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how real your scriptures are. But you present people before us that we can relate to. We thank you that you sent your son to redeem us from the pit of our sin and of our own abuse. Lord, we ask you to forgive us, to give us new life, to transform us, to bring us into your kingdom and use us for your salvation work. Amen.